And as you are seated, how's it going this Sunday morning? All right. Wow. Everybody who's awake is doing well. That's awesome. Uh, my name's Michael Miller. I'm a pastor here, and I am also a sheep, for those of you. Okay. Uh, just so you know, the correct response is, I'm a sheep. You don't have to do the arm gesture. Uh, today's passage that, that Scott just read, uh, it focuses on Jesus emphasizing his identity, who he is. It focuses on Jesus, the, the pivot point of this passage is Jesus is the way, he's the only way. And then Jesus begins to give us an idea of what that means for his disciples once Jesus' work is completed, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I want to tell you, I, I love the Word of God. Uh, it's brought me an endless supply of things that I sometimes find contrasting, of insight and mystery, of wisdom and of wonder, of challenge and of comfort. And uh, as I've read it, seeking to see what God has revealed of himself through these different books written by many authors over many hundreds of years, there's something that's, that's really unique about the experience. I keep coming back to a book or to a passage, and yeah, I got something out of it last time, but now I'm getting something out of it this time. Sometimes that's new insight. Sometimes that's a perspective that life has brought me in the interim time, right? I'm coming from a different place. And sometimes it's simply the circumstances in my life light something up in a way that I've never really paid attention to before. There's always fresh applications for me to live out. But many of us may have been taught to read Scripture in a way that works against this. So our passage today begins with a simple example of what I'm talking about. First part of John 14:1 says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, Maybe you've heard this as the sign-off of a radio host, or you've seen it on a coffee mug, and I can't tell you how many times I have heard somebody explain this as Jesus pushing the idea that you've got to think positively, accentuate the positive, suppress the negative, keep your chin up. Many people who say they follow Jesus, and many who do not, subscribe to this kind of thinking. But I want to tell you, that's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's not pushing optimism as a way of life. The way we discover what he means is by reading this sentence in context, because you have to read the context to determine the meaning, right? We say this pretty often. I decided I wanted to give you an example outside of Scripture. So if I sent you a text that says, Tim is running! What does that mean? Well, okay, those of you who have seen your optometrist recently can see that. Does it mean that Pastor Tim has put on his running clothes and is going for a run? Well, he's got a t-shirt on, but that doesn't look quite right. Does it mean his F-150 is hurtling down the road and there are police cars in pursuit because he's been playing too much GTA and he is living it out in real life? BB running. Um, does it mean that he has taken leave of his senses and he's now running for political office? 
But if I add the context of the text exchange preceding this, things get a bit more clear. If Tim wants a ride, we're leaving now. Hang on, he stepped away for a minute. Got to go. Tim is running! Don't leave without Tim, is all this means. But without knowing the context, you may not have landed on anything like this, just pulling that one Tim is running text out. You're going to bring what you know of Tim, if anything. You're going to bring some assumptions. You might have heard somebody say something. You're going to bring all of those things. So you're going to interpret it on a basis that has nothing to do with what was actually going on. You'd be like most Twitter users, if I'm honest. Uh, when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, who is the you that he's talking to? And why might their hearts be troubled in this verse? So if we back up slightly, we get enough context to answer those questions from the end of the prior chapter that Tim covered last week. Simon Peter asked him in John 13, 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So the disciples have just learned that Jesus is leaving. They don't really understand what's going on there, and they know they can't immediately follow him. And then Peter just gets roasted uh, by saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay my, down my life for you. And Jesus goes, yeah, no, you're not. Um, and that's the situation that Jesus is responding to. So as Tim pointed out um, a couple of times in this year, I think, Jesus is described as being troubled in a few places. The word troubled doesn't mean bothered. It means something more like agitated. Perhaps Jesus is looking at the, around the table and seeing panic in the faces of his disciples. That would be reasonable, but I don't know. What I do know is what he's saying next is intended to comfort disciples who just got really bad news. They're worried about being separated from him, and Peter's going, how could I ever ghost Jesus? That's nonsensical. Their master and their friend is leaving. Can you imagine, for a moment, their confusion and their despair? So what does Jesus say? Verse 1 continues, you believe in God, believe also in me. Oh, well, in that case, wait, what does Jesus mean? They're confused because they don't yet see who Jesus really is. The rest of our passage today logically follows from this statement, you believe in God, believe also in me. It's a claim of closeness to God that would have been astonishing to people who grew up in the context that his disciples did. In fact, we know it's not something that they understand yet because two chapters later, they're still not going to be uh, understanding it. It's not on the passage list on, on your bulletin, but John 16, 16, and 17 says, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they're mystified two chapters from now. They're not less mystified right now. They're just not asking him yet. 
Jesus follows up the statement, though, that he just made. You believe in, in God, believe also in me. Verses 2 and 3 say something with an interesting image. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, uh, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And suddenly, it seems like a subject change. Jesus is suddenly talking about his house. He's setting up with his dad's Airbnb with his boys, and it's going to be great. What, what, maybe he's making a claim about where he's going because it's going to help explain who he is. It will help explain why their belief in God and their belief in Jesus are to be the same. Last week, Pastor Tim pointed out that first Jesus was going to the cross and his disciples weren't going to go there yet. Jesus had work to do before the disciples were even capable of the works that they were to do later. This is true, and our passage is going to talk more about that. But they also won't immediately follow the ascended Jesus into God's presence. They're not going to be where he is in that sense either. And Jesus is going away, and the disciples won't see him because he's returning to his father's house. This is a good thing. But he still has them in mind. He's not abandoning them. He isn't saying, okay, I wash my hands of this grubby planet. He's not saying, you guys got a C- minus or a D plus and I'm out of here. He's saying, I've got work to do, and you're going to follow me. This isn't a place that anybody had an expectation to go. Bosom of Abraham, maybe, but the presence of God? Insane. I'm not going to go to Buckingham Palace and ask to stay in my room because I don't have a room there. And I know a number of you, and you also don't have a room there. We don't belong there. But Jesus is saying, you, my disciples, belong there, and I am preparing that place for you in God's dwelling. And so, do you want to talk about accessibility? God on high, distant, mysterious, Jesus, their master, sitting in front of them, eating with them, speaking with them, knowing what they're like. Suddenly, these things are connected in a way that clearly blew their minds. You want to talk about accessible, Jesus is the one you want to know because he can hook you up at the highest level. And I'd like to point out that Jesus isn't saying anything about this guy's going to get a big room and this guy's going to get a little room. The fact that you get a room is beyond any kind of ability to comprehend. I don't belong there and you don't either, except Jesus says we do. It's amazing. He's extending the hospitality of God's presence to people who don't even at this point have an idea of what he's talking about. They are completely baffled, just like you and I were or are. So much of what Jesus says is so different than what we would expect him to say that it's not like we comprehend it naturally. We need him to empower us to do that, and we need to be listening to him by reading and understanding his word because the disciples don't get it yet. They're hearing Jesus, but they don't know what he means. 
And then he says, yet again, something surprising in verse 4, you know the, pla- the way to the place where I am going. What? Well, that's obvious. No, it seems like a bold and preposterous claim. Seems ridiculous. These guys don't know anything yet, let alone how to get where he's going. It's not because they're stupid. They're, he's just saying really complicated, difficult, unexpected things. And Thomas responds that way. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now, Jesus just said he was going to the Father, so in some sense, Thomas does know where Jesus is going. But Thomas means more something like a map. He's thinking in terms of those kinds of directions, and that's not what Jesus means. He's thinking about how to, how to explain that a little better, and here's, here's the best I could come up with. If you say, Mike, we need to get appliance parts, I'm not going to go on Yelp. I am going to call my father, and I'm going to have him come over, and the two of us are going to go to one of the little tiny hole-in-the-wall parts places that he knows that isn't on Yelp. And he knows them because he's been there, and he knows how to get there from where we are because he's gone there. And at 85 years old, I really hope that my father is able to pass on a little bit more of that information. But the main thing is, my directions to the parts place, it's a person, not directions. Do you hear what I'm saying? Tim does. Tim gets it. That's what Jesus means, and uh, we can see it in his answer. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to the Father. There is no way to the Father but Jesus. And this is what unites everyone who's a Christian. This is at the core of the gospel, that Jesus alone provides access to God, something that would be unspeakable even without him, that Jesus alone can reconcile a sinner like me to God or like you to God to a perfect, utterly holy God. This is so hard to swallow that it reminded me of a guy I used to have uh, dinner with on occasion. His wife would make salmon and asparagus. He was one of my bosses at my first job out of college, and he was a great guy, really fun to talk to. And over the course of dinner, he would be drinking beer, and uh, once he'd hit a certain number, I don't know what it was, he wanted to talk about Christianity and the Bible. Before that, his walls were up, and after that, his brain was gone, so it, it was sort of a strange situation for me. But one of the things that he said in, in one of these parts of the conversation is, you've got to throw out the book of John, because it's just too different from everything else. And, you know, you can't debate a drunk person, or you ought not. Uh, and he wouldn't engage with me when he sobered up. But I think I know what he was about because John says things way more clearly than the other gospel writers. Nonetheless, I want to point to something. Um, My friend didn't like the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus in John. He didn't like the idea that Jesus could be the only way. But Luke, who wrote the gospel of, not surprisingly, Luke, and also the book of Acts, we call them together Luke-Acts for... Anyway, uh, in Acts 4, 
Peter's third sermon, he says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Okay, John's not the only one talking exclusivity. And as you start digging into the slightly more parable-laden claims in Matthew or other Gospels, or if you look at what's said in the epistles, man, it's clear. There's just one way, and that's the reality of the New Testament's teaching. So, Jesus keeps going. He says in verse 7, "'If you really know me, you will know my Father as well.'" From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Would you say that the disciples really know Jesus at this point? And they've spent a ton of time with him. They community group for three and a half years, maybe. And yet, there's a lot they don't understand about their community group leader, if you will. But knowing the Son is knowing the Father. The way to know the Father is to know the Son. How do we know the Son? We're working on that by reading John's Gospel. That's one of the reasons we're doing this. Hopefully, you are participating in a community group that's either talking about the sermon or talking about Scripture. Hopefully, you're seeing a connection of what you're talking about to your life, to see how Jesus connects with how you work or where you vacation how you interact with your family, what you do with a date, to understand how this God-man's life is a model and how this God-man is the way. Philip, however, is not surprisingly not tracking with that idea. Verses 8 and 9, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You already know the Father, Philip. You're looking at him right now. What more do you want to see? And the weird thing is this isn't a new revelation from Jesus. In John chapter 10, 24 through 30, Jesus has already made a claim about his unity with the Father, his identity as the Messiah, and for his care for the sheep. He said, uh, in response to the Jews there gathered around him, how lo- asking, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Here's Jesus' answer. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they never shall perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Jesus is adding at this dinner another layer to this teaching, what it looks like, this relationship between himself and the Father. He's already said that they're one, but now he's clear that that's not just unified in purpose. It has something more to do with person. They are one in image. If you have seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you know Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible, you know the Father. You can see his character as well as his plan to care for the sheep. Jesus tells Philip and all of us how this work is done in verse 10. Don't you uh, believe that I am the Father 
Wow, I'm going to try that again. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You got to explain how he's doing the stuff he's been doing. Jesus has offered an explanation, and he said, even if you can't get what I'm saying, you should still take my word for it, because how else do you explain this? Jesus says, look at all I've done as evidence of what God is accomplishing through me, because we are one. Jesus says, I am under God's authority, but we are one. Jesus says, my life is centered on the plan of the Father, and my works confirm that he and I are one. And the way that Jesus speaks means that he's more than an ambassador of God doing God's will. God the Father and God the Son are intertwined in this verse in a way that makes their unity difficult for anyone who resists seeing the Father and Son as one God. But Jesus says more than that. He says his works will continue through those who believe in him, verses 12 through 14. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. Whoever believes in me will do even greater things than these. What are Jesus' works? His acts of compassion, his miraculous works, his heart for connection, his message of good news to those who were far from God? Yes, it's certainly all of those things. So given the scope of what Jesus did, in what sense will his followers do even greater things than these? And there are a few possibilities. One is that well, Jesus had a three, three-and-a-half-year ministry. The church has had almost 2,000 years of presence on planet Earth and ministry with many more disciples than the 11 or 500 that Jesus departed with. But if John meant that to imply that Jesus meant more, a larger number, there are tons of easier ways to say it in Greek than the way he picked. So I don't think that's it. If he meant greater in the sense of more amazing, I'm not sure what qualifies. Um, raising the dead, knowing what's in people's hearts. I, I, I don't know how you get bigger than that. But remember what John's purpose for writing this gospel is. John 20, 31. We've read it a few times over the course of this series. But these are written, stories that John is telling, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Here's what 20th century pastor and evangelist H.A. Ironside said. He was not speaking of miracles. His chief work was not performing miracles, but revealing the Father, bringing knowledge of the Father. It was that of which he was speaking. As a result of his three and a half years of ministry, when he left this scene and he said goodbye to a group of about 500 disciples, there were doubtless a few more scattered around, but not very many. 
Very few saw him in, the, in him the revelation of the Father. <laughs> but go on, a few days later, 50 days later, ah, then Peter and the rest of the eleven stand up on the day of Pentecost, and the third person of the Trinity comes upon them in power, and they are prepared to witness for him. They preached a crucified and risen Christ, and what happened? 3,000 believed. And I think that's an even greater, greater than the ones we've talked about, but there's an even greater, greater in play. Remember that context determines meaning. Jesus hasn't been talking about doing stuff. He's been talking about going to be with the Father, but also seeing the disciples again. He's been talking about his identity, who he is, being one with the Father. And I think that begins to get at what greater means here. Ironside said that few saw in Jesus the revelation of the Father. Jesus had to die and be raised up in order for the disciples to get it. But once they did, they became part of the operation of God. Jesus did the Father's works according to the Father's plan, and that continues with Jesus' followers coming to Jesus to ask to do the Father's works according to the Father's plan. If God the Father and God the Son are one, it's a pretty cool deal that the Son would come to earth to redeem us. But what is spectacular is that when the Son leaves, he empowers those he leaves behind in perpetuity to do what he was doing in terms of his ministry, illuminating the Father. Verse 13 says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the Father accomplishes his will by the one-time work of his Son through the ongoing work of his church. And there are some who will tell you that this verse empowers you to create a successful, prosperous, comfortable life for yourself. Ask for a Bentley in Jesus' name. That has nothing to do with Jesus' work or the Father's plan. I'm sorry if that's a revelation to anybody. Jesus says in verse 14, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Jesus' name is about authority. It's not about his name as a catchphrase or there's nothing magical about that. It's about the authority that he has, recognizing and acknowledging that. His authority for now is about bringing more of us into relationship with the Father. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet and is in the middle of comforting them about the coming departure. He's not pursuing his own comfort. So why would we expect to use this promise for something he was never about for himself to further our agenda instead of the Father's? James 4, 1 through 3 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He's writing to a church. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Okay, ouch. 1 John 5, 13 through 15 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. I think this is really important. Jesus is our interface to the Father. We may boldly approach God because in Christ we have standing to enter his presence and make our petition in God's court. But also remember that Jesus has a deep personal relationship with his disciples. They've just asked him questions that missed the point. They've been self-centered. They've been clue-free. But they've been his, and how does he respond to them? Occasionally it's sharply, but for the most part, he's bringing them along. He's so compassionate to them. So it's okay to pour out your heart to Jesus, to show him all your hopes and all your difficulties. He's the best one to process it with. You don't have to be ashamed of the fact that there's difficulty in life, but it's not okay to do that if the only intention is venting. I'm going to come to Jesus, and I'm going to tell him my problems and ask for, ask for a fix, and then I'm going to walk away, and I'm not going to talk to him, think about him, read his word the rest of the time. There's something missing. It's called relationship. His intention is to transform those who believe in him. Now, if you're spending a bunch of time praying for something and you're not spending any time reading God's word, that's a sign that either your understanding or your motives are off. Spend a bunch of time praying. Not against that, but shape your praying from Scripture. Maybe read a psalm, a short one, and see what David or the other psalmists are saying to God. Lots of them are from people in difficulty, people with needs. If you're a new believer, maybe you don't have a lot of knowledge of Scripture. Well, that's fine. Go check out a community group and see if that begins to help. See if relationships in that are a conduit to learning. Maybe look for somebody who can do one-on-one -on -one discipleship with you and help you study the Bible on your own, being able to feed yourself. Now, what did Jesus say of himself? All the way back in John 5, verses 19 through 24, he says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Sound familiar? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So the believer can know Jesus and therefore can know God. Jesus is the way to God, the only way to God, and that is what Jesus has been saying all along. So this passage opened with Jesus telling the faithful disciples, because Judas has already departed, not to let their hearts be troubled. This is the same Jesus who in John 12, 27 was described as troubled in soul. And in chapter 13, verse 21, is troubled in spirit. 
but it's Jesus who is encouraging his disciples, not the other way around. As his life is in terrible danger, as he's contemplating this work that he has to complete and the the great gravity there, he's intently focused on their needs rather than his own. And that's the courage with which he's equipping us to live our lives as new creations. In Christ, you are confident because your purpose is to live for his kingly will. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 9, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Ooh, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Dead or alive, my job is the same. To know God, to make much of God, to do what he's called us to do. Do you feel that you're on point in that way? Eager to see God when this life is through, but eager to please him while you get to do what you do here? Do your prayers have that eternal focus? Are you asking expectantly and clearly that God's going to intervene to transform the lives of those who you know who are near you but not near him? Are you asking expectantly that Jesus is going to give you or develop your contribution to his ministry on earth right now? We're going to be taking communion today. I think it's a good opportunity for us to think about whether our connection to Jesus and therefore to the Father is what he's saying it would be if he powers it. Do we feel like we can approach Jesus? Do we even know what that means? This observation is one of the ways that we remind ourselves that it's important and that he's the one who provides So I'd like to ask the the worship team and then Tim, if you would come up. And I'm going to pray in a minute. I also want to point out, and I'm sure Tim will explain it in a moment as well, that we're going to have prayer available today for you. And I'd really encourage you to take advantage of people who are willing to pray for you today, to care for you in that way.